0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. And yes, it has been a while. We have been on an extended summer break but with good reason. We have been hard at work developing new opportunities, upgrading many aspects of our production and working with a new production team that's going to be onboarding in the very near future. So stay tuned for some exciting developments there. Meanwhile, we have an amazing sponsor today. If you are someone who enjoys helping others, giving charity, and would like to do so in the most optimized way possible, Dailygiving.org is your solution. For $1 a day, you can join with thousands of people all over the world who are aggregating their funds and channeling them to worthy causes that have been vetted, preselected, identified by a special team at dailygiving.org. I cannot encourage you enough to check out their site to feel that daily rush of excitement as you know that you're bettering the world Again, for just $1 every morning. So dailygiving.org, please take a look. And I'm excited to get so many Jews You Should Know listeners onto their platform and helping out. A reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know. Spell that fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you may be listening. Whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it might be. Please let your friends and family know about this podcast as well so we can continue to spread the excitement. And speaking of excitement, today's episode is really wonderful. Rabbi David M. Cohen is really a renaissance man. He's a rabbi, as noted, but also a fundraiser, a podcaster, father of a special needs child who has done a lot of work and advocacy in that area. He's an attorney, a therapist. I'm not sure there's too many boxes he hasn't checked in his professional life and in his personal life for that matter as well he shares very openly about his unique journey getting married a little bit later again having a child with special needs and it's just a very very raw and poignant conversation and so I am thrilled to introduce our conversation with David M. Cohen. We are here with Rabbi David M. Cohen. And I'm not quite sure how to describe Rabbi Cohen. He was a longtime pulpit rabbi, but also a therapist, a counselor, a fundraiser. What else? What other roles am I missing over here? There's a, pod- a podcaster. Uh, there's a lot of different roles. A- we're get author, to. Is, author is a big one author, right now. I forgot about the books. That's right. We got a bunch of books.
1: Working on a second book right now. Yeah.
0: There we go. And we've got a really cool personal narrative I know as well. Someone who shares his story often within the broader Jewish community. So really excited to hear that story. And uh, how are you, Rabbi Cohen?
1: I'm doing great. Rabbi Koretsky, thank you so much for this opportunity. As I mentioned beforehand, not for the audience's ears, but I'll repeat it again. I'm a very big fan of this podcast. I think it brings tremendous value to Klai to the Jewish people, to other people that maybe listen to it. And I appreciate the opportunity to share and hopefully inspire others who, who may be listening.
0: Thank you so much, and uh, always an honor to have a listener on the podcast. That's great, yeah. and uh, I know I, I mentioned to Rabbi Cohen, to David over here, that you know I can see his setup. He has got a golden microphone, so anybody's got a golden microphone, you know that their content is likely to be golden as well. And uh, so very very excited. So let's take it from the top as we always do, and uh, tell us where you're from, where were you raised, what was your early upbringing like.
1: So I was born in Brooklyn, actually, till I was uh, seven years old. That's the
0: original sin.
1: <laughs> we lived, uh, we lived in Ocean Parkway. I went to Yeshiva Flatbush for first grade. That's a little known fact about me. But then my parents decided it was time to upgrade to a house. They bought a home in West Hempstead. Uh, this goes back, you know, over forty years ago. Rabbi Shalom Gold was actually still the rub in Young Israel of West Hempstead. Now of Har Exactly. So when we moved there, I grew up in West Hempstead. I went to. Modern Orthodox day schools, I attended Hafter in the five towns where I live now, from fourth grade to twelfth grade, and I had a basic uh, modern Orthodox background, was captain of the Hafter basketball team, very athletic, very into sports, and uh, eventually I merited to have a grandfather who was a Rav. He was always kind of whispering in my ear to get more serious about life and about Torah and maybe a little bit later on, but ultimately that, that influence did uh, trickle in and have an impact and, and maybe brought me to some of the places I am today.
0: Who was your grandfather? Tell me about him a little bit.
1: So my, ter- my maternal grandfather, his name was Rabbi Meir Felman, Zeichot His yard site actually is this coming Sunday, interestingly. Wow. I have a son who's going to be a bar mitzvah Bez Hoshem, in December, who's named after him. He's named uh, Meir Simcha after my grandfather, Meir. He was a person who was a pulpit rabbi. He came from a family of seven children. He was the only one who was observant. And he went to Yeshiva University. He went to MTA for high school, and he basically became from on his own. And he served the pulpit. What's known today is Rabbi Golden's former shul in Englewood, New Jersey.
0: Englewood, yeah.
1: So he began his career there in a tiny, fledgling little shul. He then was in uh, in the New Haven area near uh, New Haven in Connecticut for a pulpit, then ultimately came to Brooklyn. And then he pivoted at a certain point of his career, similar to myself, or I'm similar to him. And he uh, he went into fundraising. He got involved with an institution called Mivasaret Sion in Eretz Israel. And he raised a lot, a lot of money for that yeshiva, that institution over many years of his life.
0: Fun fact, I personally attended Mivaseret Zion. Oh, I didn't even with, know that. Wow. Two okay. years. Look at that. Beautiful. That's right. Was he involved in the American yeshiva or he was, was the whole Kiryat, the whole village there?
1: The whole Kiryat. In fact, so my grandfather, he was at the rabbi shul called Judea Center. I actually read about it in my first book. I have a picture of Judea Center. The neighbor there, I think it was in Brownsville, a certain area of Brooklyn, it became a, a dangerous place at a certain point. The community died out. The firm people moved away. And ultimately they had to sell the shul. And my grandfather was actually responsible for dispersing those funds. And one of the institutions he decided to give that money to was Mivatseret Sion. So on the building of the yeshiva, there, you'll see synagogue Mivaseret Sion. My parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. So their their names are prominently displayed in various places in the institution. But the institution as a whole, I can still hear my grandfather today giving his giving his speech about the boys who serve in the army and, and so on and so forth. So it was definitely the entire curiosity. He was engaged in that. It's a
0: fascinating place. I mean, they have a whole little kind of educational village over there, Rehovah or in 50. It's been a while, but I still remember that. And um, I was there 96 through 98. Oh, wow. The a high school for, I guess, some, maybe somewhat troubled youth, a little bit, or some, some boys there needed some extra attention and we always had kind of like rivalries with them and with the american kids and then there was a Kolel a program for married israelis a very sort of intensive i think it was called Meritz Merit- Kolel yeah, which is yeah. always ironic because Meritz is the name of a very left wing political party in israel and yeah. this is a very right wing you know uh, institution of learning and not only that but the head of one of the heads of this institution was called Yossi Sarid who also was the same name as one of the heads of the Meritz party I- so it right. was very strange, kind of like...
1: Do you remember the name, Rabbi Shaptai Zelikovitch? Was that name you named? I remember
0: Shaptai, absolutely. A long, way. My grandfather beard. was
1: very close with him. They worked together. I went together. to his
0: house for Shabbat a number of times. I remember also Rabbi Sinai Adler, who was a famous Holocaust survivor as well, who was there. Right. And uh, the principal of the high school was uh, Rabbi Sofer, who was somebody I was extremely... Uh, taken with. And I became close with during my time there. So some really amazing people besides the American staff, it was Rabbi Burzon and, and company. Right. So Rabbi Isaacson, who's now ahead of it, was a knight, Seder Rebbe at the time. He was you know, a young man uh, back then. So it's an institution
1: that, that's very near and dear to my heart and my family's heart through the connection to my grandfather. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Beautiful. Wonderful. Okay. So you, you're in, uh, I guess you finished 12th grade, you're ready to listen to grandpa and start to get a little bit more uh, serious. So what did you do with yourself then?
1: So, interestingly enough, my parents were always very interested in good academics and, and getting a rigorous educational experience, whether it be in Torah, whether it be in, in secular, and in the genre in the world in which I found myself at that particular juncture. So, Yeshivat Shalavim was actually considered one of the excellent yeshivat has there that was in the modern orthodox religious zionist genre so my parents encouraged me very strongly to go to shalavim and even though i wasn't particularly into learning at the, at the time but i was a i was a pretty serious student so i somehow managed to get into shalavim despite by that uh, being so connected to Torah at that point in my life and i spent two years subsequent to high school. So it was a, a pretty big pivot from Haftar to Shalavim. It wasn't the natural kind of transition, but uh, thank God I was exposed to some great people in Shalavim and I grew tremendously in that kufa of my life.
0: Beautiful. So uh, yeah, a special place. Obviously it was in the news in a tragic way recently with the Mehron tragedy and Donnie Morris, blessed memory, who was a student at Shalavim who was killed there. And it was amazing to see, uh, you know, I like around 40,000 other people you know, live streamed the funeral and to watch some of the, the teachers there and, and their outpouring and just the beautiful atmosphere there.
1: I will point out, if I may, so Rav Ari Waxman, who is the Mashkiach yes. Rufani there, and maybe even more than that, director of students, whatever, I don't know his exact role, but certainly leading the American program there. So I was actually his first quote-unquote project. Uh, this goes way back. He was his first year, in Shahavim was my Shana Aleph, and he was my older Favrusah. And it still kind of touches my heart to watch and observe kind of the connection that he has to the boys, you know, Ad Hayom. And as you mentioned, with this terrible, tragic Leviah, he was one of the speakers. So when I watched as well, so it reminds me always of kind of that care and that connection, that concern that he always expressed for us. And that, frankly, had a very large impact on my life going forward, trying to make an impact on others.
0: He's he's on Twitter a lot, interestingly. Um, Yeah, he is. Pretty actual. Yeah, and I don't even, I'm really a lurker on Twitter. I just got to scroll through and, and see things. But I see him on there all the time. That's kind of how I recognize his name. <laughs> so I guess, did, did Shalavim do its trick? Did you did you get, you know, as they say, flip out in the modern Orthodox world as kind of a uh, a badge both of honor and of uh, of some consternation, depending on your perspective. Um, but, you know, the many, many young men and young women go to Israel after high school and end up becoming much more intensively devoted to Torah study to Jewish observance and so forth after, especially at least back then tended to, uh, churn out quite a few such individuals, including one of my, uh, colleagues that I work with on campus, but was that your experience or did it take a little while for you to, uh, get more engaged.
1: I think it was, you know, we, we're learning now, the Sugi and da- in Dafyomi, we just finished today, actually, Masefah's Yuma, and the last dopam of the Masef will talk about the concept of echtev Tev that, you know, that's, it's frowned upon to be a person who sins and then, you know, sins with the intent that he is going to then repent uh, subsequent to the sin. But using that as a model, I think I was somebody in high school who always kind of knew that when I got to Israel, that was going to be the time where I was going to Kind of begin to introspect and get more serious about get serious, life. yeah. I think what pivoted for me a little bit also was the fact that I always was going to be a lawyer and hopefully we'll talk about that a little. I, I did end up becoming a lawyer, but I didn't really have any other frame of mind in high school that I wanted to be anything but a lawyer or in business. And when I got to Shalavim, I noticed that, let's say, let's say in Haftar, I was one of the smarter guys. When I got to Shalavim, it was like the smart of the smart of all the other Flatbush and Frisch and all the schools. And it's kind of very humbling. People often talk about that when they go to, let's say, an Ivy League school and they did very well. And then all of a sudden they're with all these top people. So it was interesting. It was eye-opening, also, to see amongst this chevr of guys, this cadre of, of of young men. Each one of them, who many of them were accepted to top Ivy League institutions and really could be anything in the world. Many of them, and my class in Shalvim is a lot of fame. I'll just throw out some names, like Rav Shalom Brosner, who's uh, you know world-renowned today for his Daf Yomi I was just listening
0: to his class on podcast about half an hour ago.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, Rav Shalom is just one of many of our Chabur, of our guys who are together. But my point was that I was looking around at, at my chaverim and seeing every one of these guys could be you know, top-notch in any field, and they're all deciding to devote themselves to Kley Kodesh, to serving the Jewish people. And that kind of was really a, a trigger in my mind that maybe I also, I'm not on everybody else's level, but maybe I also should give some thought to devoting myself to the Jewish community. That was kind of really the first time that I began to recognize also a relationship with Hashem, kind of very basic tenets that maybe were, I, I think to the credit, frankly, of modern orthodoxy and other, certainly other movements in Kali, so I think that if you fast forward kind of I don't know, generations are too broad a term, but let's say the next door of people, like, right, like that would be my children's age today. Like you see that there, there's it's much more serious even in these institutions today. And I think than from when I grew up, and I think for me, it was like going to Israel. I was finally, or for the first time, exposed to some of these uh, concepts or ideas that we hold so dear in terms of relationship with God and, and connection and things like that. Just like, I don't remember ever hearing them really kind of like growing up. Maybe that's me, maybe it wasn't. Their <laughs> fault, not they might've been
0: saying them, you just weren't hearing them.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very well. Could I was recently I mentioned this uh, this week to somebody else. I, you know, oftentimes I say to my wife, you know, when I was looking into this career, that career, nobody ever told me X, Y, Z. She's like, they told you, you just didn't want to hear it. You know, so it's a good question sometimes in terms of what's being communicated, what's being heard. Often there's a big gap. You know, we can hear things or know of them, but but to really inculcate and penetrate and to make movement in our lives, that's a whole different level.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so moving to like kind of the early career phase of your life, you know, there's so many different things that you've done, and I feel like uh, you're like the uh, the wandering Jew when it comes to professions. You've been a lawyer, therapist, fundraiser, author, podcaster, etc. So let let's try to put some uh, structure to this. You know, what did you start out with? It sounds like law was your early passion or your early aspiration, at least. And uh, kind of what was the evolution of the, the kinds of engagements that you had?
1: So before I answer the question, which is a great question, just preface it with the reality that I think nowadays more than ever, people don't necessarily have like these kind of linear career paths. And I think oftentimes I find in my experience, people find it very confusing, like, you know, let's figure this out or how does this work? The truth is I'm becoming a little more comfortable because I think today you do find that people don't always go kind of step A, chronologically step B, but by me, absolutely. Meaning that I kind of, as I came back from Israel, went to Yeshiva University for college, was preparing for next stages of life, I was thinking a dual tract, like get smicha and go to law school and we'll kind of take it, you know, along that trajectory. In pursuit of that, I attended law school and concurrently was an assistant rabbi in Fairlawn, New Jersey for five years by Rabbi Yudin, who was, a, you know, really a superb rabbinical mentor, really beyond my grandfather, kind of took Rabbonus, made it more concrete for me, something that kind of excited me.
0: Amazing person, amazing person. I was actually, speaking of a his son-in-law, uh, Ben Goldman. I mean, Goldman is a- sure. also a therapist, so I sure. imagine you know that way. We were we were good friends in Mivlasaret as well, uh, and a third year after that, in a different yeshiva that we went to together. So he married Rabbi Yudin's daughter. But anyway,
1: good. ahead. Penina, yeah, Ben and Panina are a tremendous couple. They're wonderful. I think they live in Passaic, uh, New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. And so here I was. I was very turned on to a career in the rabbinate. And part of my story that I share often is that I didn't get married kind of uh, so early, like many in the Orthodox community do. I didn't get married until I was 31 years old. So here I was, I was 27 years old. I had basically completed law school and completed rabbinical training and had a, a serious internship kind of under my belt, ready for the next position. The problem was, quote unquote, I was still single. And I didn't think it made so much sense at that point to pivot to a kind of more substantial rabbinical position or even my own rabbinical position by myself without kind of having an Asia style by my side. I had some prominent uh, legal opportunities waiting for me to make some good money and get some good business experience. So I, I, I calculated, let me go work for these firms in Manhattan. Let me get some experience. I'll feel it out. If I really like it, I can always continue on that track. If it doesn't really speak to me. So when I, when I get married and I meet my wife, so I can then I can pivot at that juncture Kind of back to the rabbinate, and that's kind of how things did play out. Kind of that second track.
0: What did you think about big law and, and going to that direction? Was it what you expected? Was it uh, something that burned you out quickly?
1: You know, I think these are areas I think where people could maybe give better advice in certain ways, or you know, or sometimes we kind of get get attracted to the trappings or the prominence or even the paycheck without kind of seeing the the bigger picture. I, I've often reflected at times. That, you know, maybe had I taken a different track, maybe I'd even be a lawyer, you know, still today, I'm not saying that's good or bad. Just saying that going to that big firm environment where there's so many people you're competing against, and you may not get the best type of work, certainly in the early years where I was there, I didn't find it particularly stimulating. It was a lot of document review, a lot of technical detail, and kind of you don't really get to kind of express yourself. On the other hand, though, there is a prestige factor, and I had some guests on my Shabbos table, and I was just curious kind of what starting salaries at law are today, and I couldn't believe how large they are compared to what they were in my day. But okay, time passes, and things tend to grow and develop. You
0: factor in inflation. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, I worked in two big firms, and I, I kind of felt like, you know, I was biding my time until I got married, frankly, and could really pursue what I felt was my passion, which was kind of teaching Torah and being involved in people's lives. And uh, that's the way the Shalom orchestrated it, that in my fourth year as a lawyer, I went on a trip to Israel. I fortuitously met my future Rebitzin. We began dating long distance. I still remember because of the time difference, like being in my office in a law firm and like being on the phone with her, like before she would go to sleep and we'd have these, uh, close my office door, we'd have these uh, these conversations. And uh, I was fortunate to pivot from law, to transition from law and move to Israel for a number of years. We got married in Israel. We spent the first three years of married life there. We had our first two children there. So that kind of transition was with the thought that I saved up some money. We're going to kind of re-engross myself in, in Torah and thinking about applying to rabbinical roles and positions. And in that period of time, I kind of reinforced and began applying for positions, and we it was a big decision to come back to America, stay in Israel. That's a whole separate discussion. But at the end, we did get a position in Manhattan, and we did come back after about three years to go into Rabanus on the Upper West Side.
0: Now, I wanted just a detour for a second because you referenced it this sort of belated marriage that you know relative to the rest of the uh, Orthodox community. And I know it's something you've. I've heard you speak on other podcasts. And you've spoken pretty openly about it. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, you seem like a pretty affable guy, and and obviously an eligible bachelor. With uh, you know, at the time, with a law degree and passionate about Judaism and learning and all these you know these skills. I imagine it wouldn't have been difficult to capture the heart of of a fine young woman. And you know what what did. Prolong that process for you. What was that journey like? You know, we're reading this week's Torah portion about the forty-two. <laughs> That's seasons not so right, that <laughs> the, that
1: the Jews went through the desert. So I don't know if you dated forty-two girls or more, or whatever. But I, date, I dated without specific numbers. I dated hundreds of young women. I have one daughter. I'm blessed to have one daughter. She's a teenager. She's going to tenth grade, Manhattan High School for Girls. And I, a couple of years ago, I mentioned at the Shabbos table how many girls I went out with not for public consumption here. <laughs> she was like, she was like offended on behalf of all women. Of
0: all was, women. Like that's more than my whole school.
1: <laughs> uh, possibly. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. So you know what, I guess to put it crassly, you know, what took you so long and, and what did you learn along the way?
1: No, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a really fair question. And obviously it's men. I'm married now. I'm Bezoshem almost married 18 years now. So we're talking, obviously this goes, this goes way back. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, certainly, I think that there were ma'akfim, there were things in my own mind, there were certain expectations that were not necessarily realistic, kind of in retro. Look, on the one hand, everything's basheret, and everything happens in the right time, and I, I feel strongly that, you know, hashab was bazabet for me the right person. My wife happens to be significantly younger than me, so, you know, at a very superficial or simplistic level, someone would just say, you had to wait till your wife grew up so you could marry her. But, but on a more deeper, sophisticated level, I think, you know, in reality, people can marry a a whole array of different people. And I certainly met a lot of uh, wonderful young women along the way. And, you know, in retrospect, I probably could have married many of them had I been in the, you know, the right frame of mind about marriage. You know, without going too psychologically deep, I was the oldest child in my family. It's interesting because my two younger brothers married before me. And I think when they saw me struggling so much, I'd imagine at least subconsciously it helped them kind of move along uh, a little bit quicker, probably even encourage my parents. You know, I think uh, my parents weren't pressuring me to to get married. If anything, they were probably communicating. You know, what's the rush? You're an eligible bachelor. There's plenty of time. Again, not being so seeped in the culture of the firm world and so on and so forth. And on some of it's jarring. Like I, I actually had, uh, I did an interview yesterday for my podcast, the the JPP, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. And uh, it's not published at this podcast, but I was talking to a guy who's basically like three years older than me, and he was telling me that he has her five grandchildren, and I, I, my eldest is is sixteen years old. You know, so I was like, so it's like it's interesting. I was like, what? How old will I have to be, a Hashem, to have five grandchildren? You know, how many years away is that? You know, so that's a while off. So obviously, we all have different experiences and different timing. But to the core, I think that, and again, you can't extrapolate from my experience to other people's experience. Everybody's unique. Everybody's in Olam Everybody's in their own world. But I think it probably had to do with on some level, maybe some anxiety and fear about the future. To my parents' credit, they always uh, took care of us and didn't necessarily... Some parents make their kids work at an early age. My parents didn't do that. And I think that I wasn't always like, I wasn't jumping at the opportunity to kind of have to embrace life and support somebody. So it had to be a perfect fit and nobody can ever be a perfect fit. So I think there was that kind of a uh, picture to it. And then there was a particularity and there was kind of maybe honing in on things that maybe aren't always so important or significant, so on and so forth. You know, it makes me cry sometimes. I, I have friends that are my age, well into their 40s who are not yet married. And I've had over the years, I've served in three different positions, I think in every pulpit I've been in, I've had single congregants who never got married. I have relatives who never got married. It's kind of like, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody should get married, but but at the same time, it's certainly a value. And it's certainly, uh, it pains me sometimes when people are their own worst enemy in terms of uh, trying to get married. That's very hurtful.
0: I wonder, you know, did your experience position you to help others navigating that? And, you know, again, it, it's it's the whole thing is interesting because we talk about, you know, Later marriage, and it sounds like you were in your early 30s. So it's not like, you know, from in secular terms, that's like
1: the beginning
0: of the time period. But, 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 okay. but in, all,
1: in all fairness, also, and I, I, I very much welcome your next question, I wanted to get married. Like I was from age 21 to age 30 when I was dating seriously in Shiduchim, and I was pained and anguished by the frustration and the difficulty of finding my spouse. I'm talking to you now in retrospect reflectively how things might have been different in the shoes I sit in. I'm a very different person today than I was then. But in the moment then, I kind of felt like this is so difficult and there's nobody for me and nobody's the right fit and, and so on and so forth. And it was very painful and very lonely at different times and, and not easy. And I want to be empathic to those who have that experience. I've worked with particularly many young women counseling them. And I think that is their experience. They're wonderful Eligible uh, bachelorettes, but the world is difficult out there, not everybody gets red shiduchim. And you get past a certain juncture of life, it becomes harder just by nature. You're not in college anymore; you're harder to find. You have to put yourself out there. It's a very complex topic. So, I mean, we can we can have multiple podcasts just on this topic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I was just thinking that it's interesting, that given your own experience. I imagine that positions you do to counsel others more credibly, perhaps. But what's fascinating is that you did. As you mentioned, take a pulpit position when you left law and got married and then moved back to the States. You took a pulpit position in the Upper West Side of (laughs) Manhattan, which is kind of like the uh, Mecca of... Jewish Orthodox singlehood, if you will. So,
1: the Rabbi Shem has a good sense of humor. I don't know if that was intentional
0: (laughs) or that was just kind of like, you know, here we are, but that must have played into the dynamic there in terms of you being, uh,
1: you know, serving that population. It's so interesting. It's really interesting. You know, I, I do believe that my mother likes to say very frequently, Hashem puts you where you're supposed to be. And it's interesting when I reflect as well that. I almost became the rabbinic intern at the Jewish Center when I was 21 years old. I didn't, for various reasons. I almost became the assistant rabbi at Oiv Sedek, and I didn't for various reasons. And then I actually interviewed to be the rabbi at Lincoln Square Synagogue and didn't become the rabbi there. And ultimately, I finally became the rabbi at Daniels of the West Side. So something was pushing me towards the Upper West Side of Manhattan, interestingly enough. I did kind of have some maga, some interaction with almost all the shul at some point in terms of rabbinical position.
0: It's funny. I know I most didn't... people do the shul hopping, like, you know, on Shabbos or on right. the story. You did it as, you know, career wise. <laughs>
1: right. And I didn't, I didn't consciously uh, decide, hey, let me go to Manhattan because, because my experience will fit nicely there. I think it was, I just, it was more attractive in terms of the shul I went to was up and coming. It seemed like a beautiful structure, edifice, seemed like a great opportunity. And then, you know, practically speaking, it happened to be a demographic that I had some insight to share, but it wasn't a conscious choice to go there because of my, you know, personal experience. But again, there's no coincidences. And uh, that's where I was. Yeah.
0: So what was your experience of the rabbinate? And then ultimately, why did you leave?
1: So it's interesting. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day as well. I've had kind of like the ins and outs of the rabbinate. And I'm even at the juncture right now where I'm kind of trying to reflect, am I done with the rabbinate or am I just on hiatus from the rabbinate? Because it's interesting. I I did five years in Fairland, New Jersey. uh, And then I left the rabbinate for seven years. After those five years, I spent four years as a lawyer, three years studying in Israel. And then I was back in the rabbinate for nine years. And again, all these are different, you know, none of them were full-time, full-time doing, I was doing other things concurrently in all these positions, but the rabbinate is a primary focus as a career So then after the nine years on the West side, I spent two years, I pivoted away. I've worked now, I'm going into my seventh year working in different roles at the Orthodox Union. The first two years of that juncture was actually as a synagogue consultant. Alan Fagan, who at the time was the head of the OU, had encouraged me to uh, come over and, and use a lot of the talents and skills I had honed. Over many years to come, help other shuls and help boards and, and work in that capacity, which was attractive to me at that time. I always loved the pulpit. In Manhattan, happened to be the shul ran into some serious financial issues that made it difficult to continue there. So it was just the reality is, I, and the rabbits not like any other profession where you kind of like you know, oh, you just need another pulpit. Like it's not like there's a million pulpits open, and particularly in the New York area where we're situated. We'll probably talk about my child with special needs. So being in New York was certainly something that was important. So then I had another hiatus for two years, and then. I moved to the five towns thinking like I'm done with Rabonis or at least didn't see an opportunity. And then there was a shul around the corner from the house that we moved into that was looking for like a, a part-time, very part-time rabbi of a minion in another shul. And I ended up basically for three and a half, four years serving as their kind of weekend rabbi until I just stepped away off time. So I'm on hiatus again, sabbatical. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a great question. Like, you know, the Rabnid is a very, very, complex field. It's multifaceted, multi-layered, particularly during COVID. The, the demands are almost supernatural of Rabbanim. I have tremendous respect for people that do it effectively. You know, sadly I see a lot of my colleagues kind of have burnt out or have kind of had issues with Balabat and they make it hard to continue. So, you know, there are many wonderful opportunities about it. On the other hand, there are many challenges about it. And there are many beautiful things when you're in it, and there are many wonderful things about not being in it. and i'm I'm kind of in that process myself. you know, if if, if a, an amazing opportunity came my way and fell into my lap, would I consider it? i I, I probably would because I still have that that sickness as my wife likes to refer to it. But if it never happens again and I end up being a ball bus for the rest of my life, so that's also you know, whatever the vulnerable wants.
0: I guess you're referencing the fact when you talk about supernatural needs and qualities that you know rabbis today are expected to be, you know legal experts, great public speakers, orators, counselors fundraisers, organizers, event planners, and so forth. Is that kind of the, uh, what you meant by that?
1: I mean, yes. I mean, I mean, that part of it, thankfully, you know, I've been blessed with talents that I think make me matim to serve in the roles that are demanded of the rabbi. I think, I think the issue is more, you kind of have to please many of the people most of the time, and you're kind of at the whim of many people. And you don't work for one person and people are people, the Jewish community is a Jewish community, people are are, are sometimes gonna be disappointed. And oftentimes you just you just find that people often uh, give rabbis a hard time. And there's a lot of anguish and there's a lot of agmas nefesh and there's not a lot of stability or security in the position. There is stability and security in unique positions, but in my professional career, for example, like, I don't think I ever had a contract for longer than three years in any rabbinical position. In my most recent position, I didn't even have a contract. So the point being that here you are, you're putting your kishkas into something, you're putting everything into it. Like you said, you're doing a whole array of things and a few people can move into the community and they want something new or a new flavor or they don't like the rabbi the rabbi's not speaking to them. And, and now what? You know what? I'm saying there are rabbis who Baruch Hashem, have these very long contracts and they're in these cushy jobs and nothing's cushy, but you know, it's, it, you know it seems more secure and stable. But a lot of rabbis don't have that. And uh, that's a difficult place to be when you have a, a family in a Jewish community.
0: At what point did you start uh, orienting towards therapy and counseling in that whole area, which I think today is a, is a big part of what you do? Where did that come into play?
1: So that was very much connected to the earlier sugi we talked about in terms of shidducham. I think that in my later years as a single, a very good friend of mine recommended to me, who also a guy who got married a little bit later, he said, you might want to talk to a therapist yourself and maybe glean some, some insight into why you're having such a difficult time. And I, I took that advice. It wasn't easy to do. I think nowadays also, like fast forward 20 years, going to a therapist is like, it's like, <laughs> I remember people on the West Side used to sit in our shop and say, like, my therapist said, I was like, there's like talk like about their therapist. But I think <laughs> like 20, 25 years ago when I was in that KUFA, it wasn't as uh, comfortable to do that. It was, there was kind of still a, st- a stigma attached to it. And, but I, but I began that process and, and I began to introspect and I began to read a lot. And I became very, very interested just in understanding myself and understanding others. I think I have a decent knack for listening to other people and understanding what they're saying and So much so that when I went to Israel during that juncture, when I was preparing to go back into the Ravnet, there was an opportunity to get a master's degree in counseling with a concentration in in family therapy and and, and couple dynamics. And I took advantage of that opportunity at Nevei Yerushalayim. was a program with the University of North Texas. I was the first cadre of men. Actually, they always had a women's program. I was the first cadre of men. And I, I felt that getting that training was invaluable and getting supervision in the clinic at Nevei Yerushalayim. And that was something that uh, I've kind of always done on the side uh, over many, many years. I I, I don't see a ton of clients. I don't have the headspace for it. I'm doing too many other things. I have a full-time job. But I do uh, generally have a very small practice uh, for a number of people at any given time and try to be helpful in in a whole array of things, but particularly working with couples, uh, if I'm able to.
0: Did you become a big Mean Green fan? University of North Texas Mean Green?
1: Oh, I didn't even, (laughs) I I never, ever stepped, I was like, what's that? never, ever stepped foot on the campus because it was all kind of long distance learning. All remote. Pastors from North Texas actually came to Yerushalayim. And they taught us at Nevaeh. So I actually have never, I've been to Texas once for Dallas Cowboy, New York Giant game. And I spoke in the, the shul there, Shari Tfila, I think. But I, other than that, I've never really, uh, I never stepped foot on the campus. I have to decision. admit, I pretty
0: much knew that, but I, I couldn't give up the opportunity to, <laughs> to, to use okay. the Mean Green monikers. So. Mean
1: Green, I didn't know Okay, so the North Texas Mean Green. Okay. <laughs> That's a football team?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: yeah. Okay, I'll have to check that out.
0: <laughs> You'll check it out. So you've been doing this therapy and you mentioned that at some point you wrote a book when was that and what was it about?
1: So, I was the rabbi at the youngest of the West Side for nine years. I was writing for Mishpacha magazine pretty regularly. And that was kind of cool at the time because I was like kind of the first rabbi. Now, you see many people do it. My friend Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg in Boca Raton does it. But I was really the first guy from like the modern Orthodox world who was writing for Mishpacha magazine. And uh, I had like a nice platform there, like four or five times a year, I was writing on issues of the day on relationship issues. And over time kind of grew out of the role. I think there's often turnover for writers in, in these contexts, but I had produced a nice amount of content. I also felt that in a pulpit of Manhattan, you have a very transient audience from week to week. Karangans weren't necessarily there, and a lot of rabbis connect with their Karangans through their speaking. I found oftentimes writing was a good medium to concretize a message from Shabbos and share with my Karangans who were away or with a broader audience. So I began to cultivate material, and I kind of fell into it in a sense that Mosaica Press, who was my publisher, actually had reached out to me. They kind of like cold called me. You're on
0: Cornbluth or?
1: Yeah, yeah. Darone like emailed me and was like, "Do you ever think about writing a book?" And I was like, "No, I actually never did." But we began to have conversations. I kind of told him some of the content I had. He was like, "You basically have a half a book already. You know, why don't you uh, get to it?" And in my last period of time there, where anyway it was kind of clear that I was going to be moving on from that rabbinical position, I had a little time in my hands. And I began to write more, and uh, I was able to put together uh, a book called "We're Almost There: Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose." and in the book, I talk a lot. One chapter is about shiduchim in the early years of marriage and using some of the wisdom I gleaned in my experiences to help others. And a whole other chapter is about raising a child with special needs. And then I talk about other issues as well and cultivating emuna and faith. So that was a great experience. And actually right now, this summer, I'm actually editing a second book, which we could talk a little bit more about. To put a book together takes a lot of time, and and you need to focus, and you kind of have to figure out a few things about it. But that was a great platform to kind of put something out there. It becomes something I feel very proud of. But books grow stale after a while. And like, it's like that book is like almost like you know, it's overbought. It's time for the next one, you know. So that's uh, that's what I'm holding in that regard.
0: You mentioned a special needs child, and and I imagine that that also probably connects to what you're doing today. Earlier off camera, you told me that you are. A fundraiser now for Yachat, which is the special needs division of the Orthodox Union, the OU. So I imagine those may have something to do with each other, but tell me a little bit about this special needs child and, and that whole part of your life.
1: Sure. As we're talking, I think it's becoming clear to me that what's often confusing about my professional career is I've done many things concurrently over many years. So like, it seems like I've been all over the place, but the truth is they're like just different things I've done over time. So for example, Yahad. So we were blessed with a, a child who was born with Down syndrome, our very first child. First child. I'll go deeper into that in a moment. But basically when we moved to America, when he was about a year and a half, two years old, we needed help. We needed support and Yachad was just an address that I was familiar with. Dr. Jeffrey Lichman, who at the time was the head of Yachad, came to meet with us. We began a relationship, and frankly, Yachad recruited me to be involved on their behalf as a speaker, as a lay leader, as a board member. So Yachad's been an organization that we've actually been involved with for for many, many years. And when I came over to the OU, I actually came over not to work for Yachad. I came over to work with synagogues, which was my area of expertise and focus. But as I was at the OU, I couldn't stay away from Yachad because of my connection to it. And I began to get more involved with them until the point where I realized it made more sense for me to be putting you know, all my energies there. But back to your question, which is, we were in Israel, a young married couple, and we're expecting our first child like anybody else. It's a very, very exciting time in your marriage and your life. And the pregnancy was pretty typical, pretty normal. And what do we know anyway? It was our first child. And it really impacted our lives in so many ways. My wife's entire career, my wife actually is a midwife today. Uh, at that time, she had not done any of this training, but that whole experience actually attuned her. She had a cesarean section, the first child, and attuned her to the need and necessity for natural birth and, and women having the proper support. We've actually had a number of home births. Uh, subsequent of my wife was, this is like her whole this is, this is her passion. That actually came from this experience. But for us as a couple, here we are. We kind of, you know, we're hoping to have uh, a nice healthy baby and thank God he was healthy, but he he had a chromosomal disorder and that uh, began to inform us in terms of, you know, many sensitivities that we probably uh, never ever thought of having. I worked at Camp Hask as a counselor, you know, a bunch of years before, but you know, it's it's completely different when it's somebody else's sugya and when it's yours. So that's something, you know, when you get introduced to this whole new world, so you meet a lot of people you never thought you'd meet. And you participate in different groups of support groups, and you learn a lot about a sugya that, you know, you, you would never expect to be engaged and involved in, but it enriches your life uh, tremendously. And I can say, you know, fast forward 16 years, I can say that our son Yadidya, who currently is in Moresh for the summer, he really touches everybody that he meets, and he's a big part of the community here in Northwoodmere. It's a big part. People know him, you know, all over. Just this morning, actually, one of my colleagues reached out to me to ask me to speak in October about this issue, just how these kids and how these young adults contribute so much to the world and to our communities. And it's something that not everybody is sensitive toward. And uh, we've become ambassadors of this uh, of this cause and of this message. Again, not by choice, but when, go, when the Bolshan gives you something, so you embrace it. And like many, if you look around all the organizations, apply so. For the most part, I saw you had a very simple scholar as a guest. I had him on my podcast too. Interestingly enough, his story is not like, you know, he didn't have. right. So he didn't have a personal connection. He didn't have that. But I think he's the exception. I think if you look around, you know, Common Samuels with Shalva, you look around yeah. many of the people that found Oregon. You had Common too on your show. Common's
0: amazing. And I did yeah. that live at Shalva, which blew me away. Yeah. I actually did a whole series on special needs in Israel. When I went to Israel a couple of years ago for a live tour and I did Common Samuels I did also Daron al who's this incredible general who was well, the first soldier to land in Entebbe in the raid in 76. And he subsequently became, uh, because of his own child with severe autism, became a major force for special needs in Ale Negev and really some amazing people. And
1: Yatsi Pohn, the former head of Mossad, also has a child with a disability. I did not know that. So I could try to get him on your podcast. I would love to. That would be something, actually. <laughs> See how much he would divulge. He's just the citizen right now. Maybe you could actually get him. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I call a to you, uh, Rabari, for, for giving that exposure to this issue. It's so important. And Kalman is somebody who I really emulate and look up to. you went to Shalva in Harnov when it was in its previous location, before the incredible sixty gazillion dollar edifice that they have today was ever, ever conceived of or in existence. And I just read Kalman's book, actually. Uh, last summer I was, couldn't stop crying. It was just so powerful. So give him a shout out. There's a lot of inspiration uh, available to us. I think we live in this world today where people are looking to be inspired. People have a short attention span. I'm talking about myself as well. And we're looking for kind of like a quick hit. We live in a world of podcasts. We live in a world where everybody's consuming tremendous content. Everybody's fighting for attention. And I think this is an issue that that sometimes is overlooked, but it's an area where people can be touched and moved and inspired. And, and we genuinely feel blessed to have you did in our life. I think any of my other kids would tell you that. And I think anybody who's interacted with him for the most part, I think would say that as well.
0: I'm sure from you know, just seeing so many kids like him in different communities... They always bring such a life and joy and force a certain level of sensitivity and maturity from the other kids around them. So, uh, tremendous blessing. In that say something
1: else also, and I, might I often don't think about this, but I think Rav Chaim Knievsky said, somebody once said that having a child with a disability in your home is like having a, a personal kamiya in your home, like an amulet. It's like, a, it's a certain school for shmirah. We live in times where, unfortunately, we say, you know, Shomer Yisrael, Shomer She'eris Yisrael. We all need tremendous shmira. We're in the period of the three weeks, the nine days are upon us. It's been a Terrible time. We mentioned Mayrone earlier. We're all thinking about events in Surfside and about Harbor. I just spent some time there myself. I know you were there not too long ago. I mean, we're all just, we're at a loss. We all need a Shmira. We need protection. So in that sense, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to invest in such a child or such a young adult, so so there's a silver lining of a certain uh, Shmira that I think is there.
0: It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and of course, Yachat is a tremendous organization. As you know, And it's funny you said Jeffrey Lichman because his daughter Adina uh, was also on this podcast. She's amazing. She oh, no, she's a lawyer. She's a lawyer, right? No, well, she, she runs an organization called Knock Knock Give a Sock, which helps uh, people dealing with homelessness. And she's become a major force. Oh, wow. Uh, she's been on the podcast and subsequently I've had her speak multiple times to my college students. She's an incredible, incredible young woman. Just got married to uh, Somewhat recently, herself.
1: Oh, maybe this is maybe this is other daughter. Maybe okay. a
0: different daughter. Yeah, but yeah, I
1: know the older daughter. Okay. Adina is an
0: incredible powerhouse. But
1: I would say also, I mean, just in response to your initial question. I don't think that. I mean, clearly, my working for Yahad has to do with my son. Meaning that Yachad is an amazing cause, but the OU under its umbrella has so many amazing causes: MCSY, JLIC, so on and, and so forth. Teach. I mean, they're doing incredible things. But Yachad is really my baby. And I feel good about that in the sense that I think, you know, within the OU structure, maybe Yachad doesn't get as much attention as some of the other kind of sexier divisions. So I feel good that I'm able to kind of bring my, my talents to bear in that area.
0: So I want to ask you kind of a, maybe a difficult, somewhat personal question, maybe a theological question, which is that you waited a while to get married. And, um, you know, you were, you were sort of longing for 10 years to get married. And, you know, we, we tend to associate Down syndrome with births of older, you know, at an older age, and your wife was younger than you. So, you know, typically you think of it.
1: My wife was 21 years old when you did you was born. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We tend to think of it as somebody's last child often. or Right, right. You know, when you're in the 40s. Of course, there's always exceptions, obviously. Right. But I guess, you know, theologically, did you feel the sense of, you know, the sort of confusion? You know, like, God, I waited so long to get married. It took so long. Now this, like, why me? Did that, did that. You know, challenge you in some
1: way, well, Barry. That's an amazing question. I actually, I was I was fortunate to be a guest on the Meaningful People podcast, which is really also one of the great podcasts in the in the Jewish world. nathan and Yaakov actually asked me that uh, very similar, if not that exact, question. I don't remember exactly what I said to them then. Guys, but I didn't I, get it
0: from you. probably I'll say I'm a not, similar
1: thing. Now, I'm but not stealing. <laughs> you no, know, I remember Moshe Weinberger, who's one of my rabbis, somebody who I look up to, and I continue to be touched by and inspired by. So I remember when this, quote-unquote, calamity happened to us, that initial month, kind of after having gone through everything I went through to get married and then have this happen, on top of that, if you think about life, like, you know, the biggest things are, right, other than Parnassa and health, but being able to get married, to be able to have a family, this is a huge, a huge area to have a Nisayun in, obviously. And I remember calling uh, Rav Weinberger at the time, and I remember him just like kind of crying and being like, I can't believe this happened. Like He was saying, I can't believe this happened to you, David, like, wow, like after everything you've been through on top of that, to have this happen. I think people that really cared deeply for me and were with me through the saga and supported me of trying to get married, they took it very hard. It's, it's a question, how would I look at it today? How would I look at it then? I definitely had a hard time with it at the beginning. I, I won't lie to you. I was kind of looking around for answers. I remember going to different Gadol Yisrael, heard some crazy stuff, to be honest, from people, uh, not always in the most positive uh, way. Is there an answer to why a building collapsed in Surfside and we still haven't found many of our brothers and sisters that are missing people that, that we know and that we're connected to? I mean, there's so many things that are beyond our grasp in, in life. And you know, the other Bonsham loves us he sees what we don't see and he brings us to the experiences that we each need to have for the tikkun of, of our neshamas for our souls he really knows what's best for us we don't really know i mean there's always this battle of like how we like things to be or control and and then there's kind of like relinquishing control and understanding that there's there's a higher being that, that really has the ultimate uh, control so was it difficult was it deflating of course it is on the other hand uh, you know, sadly, I'm not unique. You know, I look around so many people in Kleistral who have, whatever, I don't want to, you know, say particular names, but they're people that I know people get chizik from, like my my, my chavier and my colleague, the finer Feiner in the White sure. Like, Also like an amazing guy, like rock star in so many ways. And he also had trouble having children for so many years. And then he finally had a child who just made a bar mitzvah. A I heard
0: place. all about the bar, I heard the, the place was in tears. My mother-in-law was telling me.
1: You can look around. I, I, you know, I know people. You know, well, they never had children. I know people who. It, it pains me so much. This, this family in Surfside. My my brother in law, Kivi Eisenberg, uh, from Vienna. So my wife's little brother. He had a good friend from Chavrin Yeshiva who was in this building with his wife, the young couple, and uh, and they just showed up there that. Like can you imagine, they just showed up there that night to visit their father. I mean, like, so meaning what I'm trying to say on some level is like, you know, we can all get fixated, fixated in our challenges and difficulties. Why does Hashem give me problem X, Y, or Z? But I remember hearing also something from Rav Zev left at the time. Like, you know, nobody ever says, well, the Rosham gives you tremendous bracha and, and gives you uh and good health. And there's, why does Hashem bless me? With that? Why? I'm not worth we, we never think we're not worthy. I shouldn't say we, some people do appreciate every little thing in life, but I think a lot of people, they think Magi alahem all the Tov, and when the bad happens, it's like, why is this happening to me? You know, like I used to deal a lot with Carringans on the upper west side who would, you know, they would like reject Hashem, like they had this kind of tit for tat, quid pro quo, like, I'll do for Hashem if he does for me. If he's not gonna do for me, I'm not gonna do for him. Like doesn't work that way. You know, these things are not directly correlated or connected. Like, there are times we can connect to Hashem, and there. I've dealt with people who've suffered, you know, the worst tragedies, and they tell me they can't daven, and I completely respect and understand that, and even encourage that at times. Like, you know, you can be angry with a parent. You can be angry with their bono shalom. So it's a, it's a big discussion, obviously. But the answer is, is on the, on the one hand, yes was obviously highly disappointing and scary and frightening. And I didn't know then what I know now, which is that, you know, I have an amazing son and thank God we have a pretty good life. And then you think it's like the biggest catastrophe ever. You think your life is over and you can't imagine how your marriage is going to survive and you're ever going to have other children. So I'm in a very different place. I'm Baruch Hashem blessed. I have five children and it's a very different place to be and to talk about it the way I'm talking about it now. But at the same time, like, you know, at the same time there always was kind of like a feeling Although there was a lot of disappointment and, and anger and frustration, there also was a feeling that I trust. On some level, there was that feeling. I'm blessed with that. I've always had that kind of, I understand that, you know, not everything goes your way. And uh, I'm a very resilient person. If there's one quality that I think that I possess, it's it's a certain quality of resilience. I've been through a lot of my life in different uh, environments and different situations. And I I tend to bounce back. I may be down for a while, but to to put me down for the count is not something that I, uh, you know, I I think you have to keep fighting through and you have to keep pushing. And uh, eventually you find the messages and you find the meaning, and you find the inspiration and challenges that you're, that you're dealt.
0: Do you think that resilience is inborn or it was something you learned?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was always like an athlete growing up. It's part of the sports. Like you push through your, your, I, I, people who know me well know that, that sports you know, for good or bad, some people make fun of it. They think like, you know, a rabbi, sports, like, posnish But like, for me, I, I find besides the entertainment value, I find that there's a lot of meaning in terms of the effort that people go through to kind of accomplish. And just like to become a huge Talmud Chacham, you need to have a lot of reps and a lot of chazara and a lot of, you need to have natural inborn gifts, but you also need to kind of like, uh, you need to hone those gifts and talents. So I think you can draw a lot of parallels from different worlds. And I think for me, growing up as an athlete, I appreciate what it means to work as a team and have setbacks. And I always find it very inspiring Like when, it, when people overcome challenges in their lives certainly inborn on some level, and certainly something that I, I watch being modeled. I'm a big believer also in kind of like, you have to be in the game. You, know, you have to put yourself out there, I'm not afraid to get rejected. My wife thinks I'm crazy. I'm not afraid to go after opportunities that are... Meaningful to me, even if the odds of them working out are very are very slim. You need to. Be, this is a good quality for a fundraiser as well. You can't fundraise if you're going to be. Robert Paisal Krum once said that a fundraiser needs to know this idea. That he says S W to the third power over N. Some will, some won't. So what next? Meaning that in life, not everything's going to go your way, but you know you can be devastated by it and crushed by it. Or you can say, Okay, like, you know, weiter Beschas, like let's move on to the next thing. You know, you can't worry so much everybody thinks and then nobody remembers you today, yesterday, they're on to the next thing. You try, you put your best foot forward, you'll be proud of your effort. You're not for everybody, you know, it has to be a, a good shit off, it has to be a good fit. Yeah, could certain things have gotten easier in my life? A thousand percent. But On the other hand, like I believe every experience has made me into who I am and I'm able to make the impact that I am and be who I am because of my unique experiences. And everybody, I think, is similar. I'm not unique in that way.
0: It's a great quality. I often wish I had personally thicker skin, even though I am pretty resilient also, but I get knocked down as well pretty quickly, you know, from uh, from frustrating experiences or disappointments. So thick skin is definitely something that's increasingly valuable in our you know, hyper-challenging world.
1: I think my skin has gotten much thicker over time. I mean, I, I in my early years in the rabbit, in particular, I had thinner skin. I think it was, it's, it's always, look, nobody likes to be criticized. Everybody, I think, the them wants approval, wants to be liked, wants to be admired, wants to be respected and looked up to. Uh, It's not easy. At the same time, you know, a person does over time recognize kind of like, I think what's really important, what's not so important. And it's just the reality, you know, you can't please all the people all the time. You know, that's the reality.
0: Yeah. And just going back to your um, point about, you know, suffering and one of the most poignant responses I ever heard was I had the privilege, the great privilege of having uh, Racheli Frankel on this podcast Mm. a few years ago. I, I got to sit with her in her home actually. And, you know, I asked her about this and she spoke about the fact that, you know, how hypocritical would I be if I was all of a sudden challenged in my faith because of my own personal tragedy when there's tra- tragedy has been going on my whole life around me in, you know, all over the world. Now, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm confronting God. Now, all of a sudden, it bothers me. And I heard her reassert that point on David Peshevkin's podcast as well in 1840 a number of months ago. And it's it's, I mean, it's something that only someone in her position could say but it was so powerful it's, it's such you know currency and i found that really really riveting they like you know all now i'm bothered because it happens to me
1: yeah, Rachel, okay. Rachel is incredible. She doesn't even need my approbation. I'm glad you gave Rav David Beshevkin a shout out too, because he's doing a great job at 1840. I told him that recently as well. We can probably mention all of the great all the
0: Jewish podcasts. We we'll got them all in here, man. Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, right now, thank God, we're all we're all hopefully adding something to Clyde. So I think Rabbi Sachs also. There was a great video, Chief Rabbi Sachs going around. I think that uh, a young lady, I think she was Australian, was asking him about the question of tzaddik hara'lo, like why does the I'm not saying I'm a tzaddik, but why did the righteous suffer? And and Rabbi Sachs had this incredibly poignant response about how, you know, he never really had an answer, but he thought he had an answer. This was recorded kind of soon before his death in the sense that Hashem wants us to kind of fight the injustice. Like, if we knew... If we knew it, we would accept it. Right. If we understood it, we understood the reasoning that we wouldn't fight it, right? But he wants us, Dafka, to reject it. I think what Rachel is saying is we have to feel the pain of others. If anything that I've learned from my own experience is that, you know, I happen to be a deep, a mitra in general. I'm a, I'm a person that's emotional, that feels. And I think that when you see other people going through things and you've been through things, you know that things don't have to be the same, but you just know the anguish and you know kind of how difficult it has to be. Just like Lahav deal, it's very hard to be excited for people when they have a tzalecha. I think the way most people work is success, like, yeah. somebody else is having a of success, they begrudge it. When somebody else is suffering, you, you feel a little bit like, not that you're happy that they're suffering, but magil am a little bit like, okay, like by the MS way to look at life is to, when people are successful, I once heard this from, from Binyamin uh, Weinberger, actually, he's a uh, very, uh, bin, sorry, Binyamin Eisenberger from Bar Park is a very famous, uh, used to come speak at Upper West Side, he was saying like, it's a madrega to see your chaver having success, Another rabbi gets more people to assure than, than you do, or he's more success, and you're happy for him. I often try to put myself in the shoes of a rabbi who's having more success, right? Or, you know, it's like, how happy would I be if I was in his shoes? So imagine how happy he is. And the same way, when things don't go your way, and it doesn't go well for somebody else, imagine how anguished you would be, and, and imagine what they're feeling there too. So this idea, I think, of Bosham is asking us of this, I think particularly in the time that we're in, to look at other people, to feel, to generally feel both other people's happiness and other people's, uh, shortfalls or downfalls, and to, and to feel and to realize that everybody's human. And just like you feel ups and downs, other people also do.
0: Just in starting to wrap up, we've referenced all these podcasts. I think we, I think we pretty much name dropped every podcast in the Jewish (laughs) world. So you have your own podcast, the JPP, J double P Jewish philanthropy podcast. Now, a cynic might say, tell me about what it is, but a cynic might say that it's a great ploy to uh, to do fundraising by getting wealthy people on your podcast, if that's what it is, to come and talk about philanthropy. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, let's go out to lunch afterwards. I don't know if that's what it is. If it is, that's brilliant, by the way. Cynical, but brilliant.
1: I'm not going to comment on that. I can't comment I can't comments on that. I will share that I've been fortunate to raise money, Bar Hashem, from some of my guests.
0: So tell me, what is the podcast? Is it basically having philanthropists on and understanding the mindset behind giving?
1: You know, it's like all these enterprises. They kind of morph into different things. I'm very gratified by the response. It's really, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's catching on. And I think it's a unique genre, a little bit different from some of the other Jewish podcasts. So that's kind of cool. At the beginning, what it was, and if you look at the trajectory of my guests, at the beginning was kind of my learning from expert fundraisers, how to fundraise. That's how it started. Then after I kind of felt like I had that down a little bit, a little bit of a selfish angle to it, then it kind of became a little bit, particularly during COVID, where it was difficult to have meetings with people. So it became an opportunity to potentially make a connection with people that I maybe couldn't get to otherwise. So certainly you were very smart about picking up on that. So there's certainly that angle to it. I've also done a few kind of just special episodes or bonus episodes or guest episodes. My most listened to episode actually was an episode that I did with Rabbi Yeshua Hartman.
0: Huh, the Maral.
1: The Maral uh, annotator and commentator who lives in London, who happens to be a close uh, Rebbe and mentor and, and friend of mine. So I did an interview with him in honor of Huttner's uh your 40th yard side if i'm not mistaken and i remember that Many years before he'd been a guest in my surely spoke about his personal relationship with Raf Hutner, which is pretty yes as a child. I heard him pretty not well known. Yeah, yeah. So Rabbi Hartman's father was a to- on Swarm top on the
0: Chatter of- Podcast. He didn't mention another one.
1: Yeah, he was on that one after my he was on, he was on <laughs> it after me, and I got a shout out no, on We're that,
0: really getting all of them here now. So yeah, so we should start charging ad adver- I'm gonna charge advertising to all these guys for these.
1: We should mention behind the beba too. I behind know. the beba from Goldberg, you said your friend, yes. Yeah, so we did we have to give them a shout-out too. But the truth is that and that was, was the eye-opening to me because that was actually the most downloaded episode of the episodes that I did. You have the same experience yourself, I think. And I got to speak to some amazing, amazing people that are not from our world, that are not from the Orthodox world, that are from you know, the Jewish world at large. And everybody has an amazing story. Obviously, your interview style is a little bit more, you're asking about people's individual story, although it's probably similar questioning. I basically ask the exact same questions to every guest that I have. And I enjoy kind of watching kind of how every guest kind of moves around with the set, you know, questions that I, that I give them. But it's, it's great. I enjoy the conversations. To me, it's just, it's just a medium of networking and meeting people and sharing it with others and particularly in the world in which we live i find that you know when i drive in a car i always just put on a podcast if i'm exercising which i should do more of i put on a podcast so on and so forth like I like to speak. Just have you mentioned my microphone? I like guess it's, it's just so cool to have a microphone in front of you. It's just like you kind of feel chasham. It's like a funny thing. Like <laughs> like you you grew up watching this radio and TV personnel. It's kind of a way for us to pretend that like we have like a, a radio show or a TV show. And so I, you know it, it's still evolving, and I don't know kind of where it goes from here. I find we probably find this too. It's a pressure. I mean, it is a pressure if you want to keep uh you want to keep your audience. You kind of have to be producing content pretty regularly and to stay ahead and not to fall behind and to have you know, a certain caliber of guest. It's not the easiest thing, especially when you're doing it kind of on the side. So that's challenging, but I find it, I find it rewarding. Uh, Thank God. Anything that you enjoy doing, you can catapult yourself towards doing it.
0: Are the guests reticent to join because I would, you know, wealthy people often don't want to be identified as such or like, I'm a philanthropist. Now I'm on the philanthropy show. You know,
1: it's fascinating to me. You know, so it's like any show. Like When I start at the beginning, it's like, who are you? And nobody wants to be your first or your fifth or your seventh guest. I don't know what your experience was like. But in the sense that, thankfully, it was Mazel, I got some really big-name people to be guests at a pretty early juncture. So now when I'm pitching new guests, I at least have the credibility of saying person X, person Y, person Z have been on my show already. I think it's Yeh for yeash. I definitely get no probably you know, 50% of the time. Not everybody's looking to share that they're a philanthropist or that they're out there. I think some people should be on the show. They're just afraid because it's called the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. They don't want people calling them.
0: Right, people start calling them for money.
1: Look, I think that some yes, some no, you know, and that's fine. Like we said, some will, some won't. I think sometimes, depending on who I have to share with them, just the sense of it's not really about money and philanthropy. It's really about getting to know them better. So in the sense that we talk very little about philanthropy, but the truth is, look, there's some people that love to talk about their philanthropy. They're super proud of it. They have foundations. They don't see it in any way as like a tacky thing. And I find most of these people are pretty strong, confident people. Like they have no problem saying no to people. And I think everybody can be inspired. You know, philanthropy doesn't just mean money i think that's also big i mean we've had some people i've recorded some episodes recently that haven't released yet of like people i just had a guy who was like the head of the wounded warriors project for many years and he talks about that work of working with disabled veterans like not not jews like america you know united states army etc so philanthropy i think also is a very big broad term it's not just money there's definitely different agendas and different items to it. And yeah, not everybody who I want to be on the show is going to be on the show, but I imagine that any show, no matter how, like you look at the, the big, big podcast, the people like the Tim Ferriss and and these other people.
0: Rogan. Yeah, exactly.
1: They get president Obama. They got, they get uh bill Gates. So we're all in our own worlds. Like, you know, who, who we, who's the biggest name we can get. And some guests you can get, and some guests you can't get, and some are better than others. And sometimes the people you least expect are the best guests, you know? So it's, right. It's a who knows. You know, That's it's I say
0: some are already in my tagline. I say some are already famous, some not yet so, because some of the most amazing people are completely unknown and unsung. You know, for the record, I don't even want Obama or Gates. So there. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they wanted to come on, I wouldn't let them. They're not Jews, you should know. But
1: They're not Jews. So therefore, <laughs> right. You should start a podcast. Uh, non Jews, you, you should right know. Gentiles, you should know.
0: And people have joked that I should start Jews, you shouldn't know. I could have, you know, I wouldn't
1: would
0: <laughs> name some of the criminals and, and uh, you know, miscreants <laughs> among us. But anyway.
1: Then you'd have to speak to them. <laughs>
0: then I have to speak to them, exactly. You know, this is a collect call from.
1: <laughs> right. So
0: oh, just in closing, uh, tell me about your second book. What's it about?
1: When's it coming out? So during the pandemic, I was thinking so much about how much, on the one hand, I enjoyed the quiet. Again, putting aside all the tragedy and pain, and I'm just putting aside all that, just in terms of a very personal experience of being closed in with my family. On the one hand, there was a lot of beauty to that and a lot of growth that came from that in a very nice way, particularly with my kids. On the other hand, I'm a very, very extroverted social person and I, I, I get off on social interaction and being out there and going to events and it's very hard for me. I used to travel a lot, get to go places and speak and like for a year and a half, I've been locked in my house more or less, you know, so, so to the degree that we, we, we're, for the last few months we got to travel a few places, Baruch Hashem, but it's not what it was. So I've been thinking a lot about the idea that we're still here. Those of us that are blessed to still be here, that's a big accomplishment uh, a sports analogy, I remember the New England Patriots. I'm a, I'm a Tom Brady fan. I have to confess, that's a person that not everybody loves. But You're I, a Bucks fan. <laughs> I, I'm not a team fan, but I, I respect Tom Brady and what he's accomplished. And they had a mantra a couple of years ago where they would say, we're still here. Like people trying to knock the Patriots off their pedestal. They'd say, we're still here. You can't get rid of us you know, just yet that talks about kind of the perseverance that we talked about. But I was thinking about, so we're still here. So those of us that kind of came out on the other side of this pandemic, so what did we miss? And a lot of what we missed was kind of the people that we get to relate to and learn from, that which we're doing here even, like, New people, new relationships, but Hashem will continue. So what, what I'm hoping to do is kind of portray different people that I've benefited from and gleaned wisdom from and different experiences and kind of share that with the world. So it's going to be kind of like a a post-pandemic expose on the importance of relationships in our lives, people that we're close with and people that we're not yet close with. So that's kind of what I'm, that's what I'm working on. Any uh, re-
0: scheduled release
1: date? I think it'll be early 2022.
0: Okay. Early 2022, you heard it here first. You'll remind us when it comes out so we can tag it then, um, promote it. But in any event, Rabbi David Cohn, again, a rabbi, a therapist, a lawyer, an author, a podcaster, a fundraiser, and really a renaissance man. I like to say, jack
1: of all trades, master of some.
0: Master of many, there we go.
1: (laughs) A A renaissance man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the time and the opportunity. I wish you continued with all the great work that you're doing.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.